Our passage today is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're studying the book of 1 Timothy, and we're the type of church that does that line by line. We go through the books of the Bible because we're the type of church that thinks knowing and understanding Scripture, all of Scripture, every jot and tittle as it says elsewhere, is important. And reading line by line helps us to know and hopefully emulate the character of Jesus, which means we care passionately passionately about the things he loves, but we also need to care passionately about the things he doesn't love. And studying entire books, going through them line by line, forces us to look at all of God's words, not just some of the parts that we like. And the book of 1 Timothy contains some things that, as you guys experienced the last couple of weeks, many modern ears get uncomfortable with. Things like sinful behavior, disruptive behavior. But I would tell you that knowing these things, knowing these uncomfortable things, is going to make us better. Because the story behind this letter, and the reason Paul wrote it, is critical for knowing God's character and keeping us on his path of truth. For instance, we believe what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, may be complete, equipped for every good work. This means that Scripture is truth, and anything that contradicts cannot also be truth. And it also means that God used people to write out His story, and these are people that God knew intimately. And then for us, it means. That by using Scripture appropriately, it helps us prepare for life here and later. And you'll have to forgive me with this little thing here. There's, my glasses don't stick to anything, so they just keep sliding. So I'm going to have to keep doing that. And let me correct one common mistake about the Bible. See, the Bible is not a book. Let me repeat that. The Bible's not a book. It's actually a library of 66 books written by 44 different people across spans of thousands of years. And each of those books, though, points to the same person. It points to a Messiah, a person who's fully man and fully God, and the one that we know as Jesus. And so what the Jews called the Torah, we largely call the Old Testament. And each book in the Torah conveniently points forward to a coming Messiah. And then in our New Testament, where this letter is found, where the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul, written by Paul to Timothy, is found, each book in the New Testament points backward, explaining that the Messiah, Jesus, has come. And then in the last book, as we went through last year, which is Revelation, that book also points out that he's coming yet again. 
And so what this means is both sets of books, both libraries, point to a central figure, and that's the God-man that we know as Jesus. Does it make sense? So let's recap briefly then what Pastor Chris has been teaching us. Because 1 Timothy, if you read it quickly, it goes quickly. But it is full of incredible information. And so over the, over the last six weeks... So we're in chapter 2, and it took us six weeks to get here. That'll tell you something, right? But over the past six weeks, Pastor Chris has taught us that 1 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul, who we would call a senior pastor, to a younger pastor, maybe Paul's the mentor and the younger pastor is a protege, named Timothy. Paul had been a persecutor of Christians, um, and as it lays out in the books of Acts, while in mission to arrest and perhaps even kill some more Christians... Paul met Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And because of this meeting, Paul radically changed and changed his ways. He went from chief persecutor of Christians, what was then known as the way, to one of the chief teachers. And after years of study, Paul actually studied for about 13 years, most people think, before he went out on the road to teach. So there was significant effort here. And after study, Paul began to set up churches across what is now huge swaths of Asia, Europe, and North Africa. Basically what we would call the Gentile word. And if you're not familiar with that term Gentile, it simply means other than Jew. And so while doing this, he met people like Timothy. And after a lot of mentoring, Paul sent Timothy and others, Titus, on missions to different churches to provide instruction on what it was to follow Jesus. And if you will, imagine what it must have been like in the first century after Jesus, how confusing the early church would have been. People were trying to assert themselves because egos never come into play in life, let alone church, right? So people were trying to convince others that they had special insight. People were trying to convince each other that they were authority figures. And these people were often false teachers, what Jesus referred to in Matthew 17 as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so in this instance, in 1 Timothy, Paul got word about a group of leaders in the church in Ephesus, which is a church he started, that were spreading incorrect views about Jesus, and he therefore sent Timothy to confront these leaders and try to restore order. So this letter then is an instructional outline to help Timothy complete his mission and cleanse the church of false teachers, or what Jesus referred to as wolves. And this letter, it, it wasn't privately written. It wasn't just, hey, you know, keep this private, Timothy. This is from Paul to Timothy. No, it was written to Timothy, but it was meant to be shared with everybody. And the reasons for that, we don't really know, but it was probably to do things like help the young Timothy's words carry more weight and have greater impact. And then later, now, churches like ours and others have recognized the solid and practical advice contained in this letter, and we use it for a blueprint to conduct a proper and orderly church. Hence the name of this series, 1 Timothy Blueprints for the Household of God. Got it? All right. So 1 Timothy then is authoritative for us. It's in Scripture. It means something. It's significant. It's authoritative because we should know, or it's God's church, and we should know what God's church says, why it says it, and how to incorporate those things into our lives. And the letter starts by Paul pointing out his authority as an apostle of the risen Christ, he quickly identifies problems with false doctrine, self-appointed and arrogant teachers, problems deciphering the law and misusing the law, and that all of us, Jew and Gentile, are loved by God. So in other words, the main point here is that the true gospel, the good news of Jesus, 
will always lead to godliness in its followers, and anything else is literally a path to destruction. So that's all in chapter 1. So chapter 2, the next three hours that we're going to go through, I'm going to cover seven verses. <laughs> I've already got a sleeper out there, so hey, it's good. I've got to keep them on their toes. Um, so we're going to start putting things in order to the best of our ability based on Paul's script. So the first thing he wants you to know is prayer is critical. As it says in 2.1, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And notice there in that sentence it says, first of all. Another way of saying that might be like, hey, most importantly, or of primary concern. So what follows, first of all, is something that we should really pay attention to and dig into. I mean, if, if I went to a doctor, if you went to the doctor because you weren't feeling well, and the doctor said, yeah, I see you have this terrible illness, and it's making everybody around you sick. But I know just how to make you better. First of all, wouldn't you just pay a little closer attention? Wouldn't you want to know what that doctor was prescribing for you to make your life just that much better? Well, I, I know I would, and, I'm, and that's what Paul's trying to do for us here. So his first of all, then, is I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So remember those four things, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings as we go through what Dr. Paul's prescription is. And so my, like, did you know for today is that supplications, we've all heard that term, right? But we probably don't use it very often in our daily language. And what I found out in my research is it's a uniquely Roman term. And the definition of supplications is a ceremonial address to the gods decreed on occasions of victory or in times of public danger or distress. So now don't forget the audience that Paul's writing to. It's a heavily Roman audience. It's made up of Roman citizens. And as Paul says elsewhere in the gospel, he wants to be all things to help all people understand the message that is Christ. And so supplications is actually an example that Paul's using in a way that means corporate worship. I mean, you can't have a ceremony all by yourself, correct? So what Paul's telling us here is that church is meant to be corporate, and corporate means many becoming one. So church is meant to be a community of worshipers. And this is just another reminder that following Christ requires more than one person. It requires community. So I, I don't know about you guys, but I know in my life I have a number of people who I care about and are very important to me and that I love sincerely who say things like, the mountains are my church. Yeah, I just do church alone. And I need you to know that that is outside of the authority of Scripture. It leads to wrong thinking, and that is part of what's going on here in Paul's letter. He's pointing you to community. You know, there's a term for that. It's called Lone Ranger Christianity. And Lone Ranger Christianity is not really a thing. Because Christianity requires you to be sacrificial, and it's communal. And when you're alone, there's nobody to commune with, and there's nobody to sacrifice for. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 6, verse 2, it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's like an exclamation point for us there. Church has to be community. And then the fabulous Paul Tripp, who was a well-known pastor, psychologist, speaker. I'm sure he's got a whole bunch of things on his 
after his name on his business card, but there's a lot. But Paul Tripp's quote, we weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a level, loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects, yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. Just know that Paul here is telling you to do exactly what you're doing today. I don't mean to lecture the choir. We're all here. That's good news. But I know that we have a lot of people outside of these walls that we care about and love on, and I want you to know what that truth looks like. And so after supplications is prayer. And prayer seems so simple and obvious to us. And it is, because prayer is just simply an honest conversation with a loving God. It's putting your heart and mind in the hands of God and listening for his voice. Remember, prayer is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And so many of us treat it like a monologue. Dear God, boom, 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 thanks, and you move on. God wants you to sit. He wants you to wait. He wants you to listen. Have you ever thought something in your mind and thought it was really funny or really poignant or really pithy or whatever you were trying to accomplish at that moment? And then when you said it aloud to others, recognize that it wasn't nearly as funny as you thought it was? I do that almost every night at dinner with Linda. <sighs> um, but prayer fills that role, right? It, because it's taking your inner thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or other, and they're supposed to be your honest thoughts. And it's giving them to God, and not necessarily for his approval, because one, God already knows what you're thinking, even if it's horrible. He knows, but they are your truth in the moment. And what God wants to do with that truth is he wants you to admit it in your heart especially if it's wrong, especially if it's wicked. He wants to reshape your heart for him and him only, and he uses prayer as one of those first steps. Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if everybody's familiar with Corey Ten Boom, but she's Dutch. She was a watchmaker in pre-World War II Germany, and as the Nazis begin to round up the Jews, Corey Ten Boom and her family hid them. She's kind of an Anne Frankish type person. And her family was found out, and she was captured, and she was put in a Nazi concentration camp. And she became a, pro a profound Christian. And in that, <clears throat> she writes, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. So somebody who's been in a Nazi concentration camp, somebody who knows misery and death beyond anything we can probably imagine, these are her thoughts. And next after prayer, intercessions. Intercessory prayer is an act of praying on behalf of others. And we'll cover more in, in um, what verse 5 says and a little bit about Jesus. But Christ Jesus closed the gap that sin created between us and God. He's our great intercessor, and we go to him on behalf of others. So other Christians, the lost, everyone, asking God to grant their requests according to God's will. That's intercessory prayer. We're to come to God on behalf of others in a heartbroken and repentant attitude and say, not my will, Lord, but yours. It's the ultimate way of saying, I trust you. It seeks God's glory. It doesn't seek our own. As a matter of fact, 1 Samuel 12 has something to say about prayer. It says, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. 
So you see, prayer is not something we should do or not something we ought to do. No, it is something we should do. It is something we ought to do. It's not something we should be confused about. So don't take it lightly. So for those of you who, like me, sometimes have struggle with our prayer life, it's of paramount importance. Ask Dr. Paul. And Thanksgivings, well, we know what that are because it's coming right around the corner, right? It's turkey and cornucopias and stuffing. No, it's being thankful for whatever comes your way, even if it's not great turkey, even if you don't like pumpkin pie. Be thankful for it. So being thankful, it doesn't mean you can't be honest with God about your true feelings. It simply means recognizing that this life is temporary and that whatever happens to us, we can either get better or we can get bitter. So try to be thankful at whatever comes your way. I know it's not always easy, and we certainly have horrible things that happen to us in this life. But they're happening for a reason. I don't know what it is, and oftentimes they just stink. But God wants us to do our best to say, you're in control. Well, that was all verse 1. You ready for verse 2? So verse 2, for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So notice it says for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. It doesn't say pray for people you agree with. It doesn't say pray for politicians you voted for. It doesn't say for pray for people who seem nice. It says pray for all people. And prayer for all people comes from the fact that God desires all people to be saved. God stands there looking at you, looking at everybody across this crazy world with open arms and an invitation that all are welcome. And he desires to use us for his purposes. When you meet somebody on the street, you may be the closest thing to the gospel that that person has ever met. So this is really important. I'm not saying that God needs your prayer, because he doesn't. He honestly doesn't need anything from us. But what I am saying is he wants your prayer. He desires it. He covets your attention. He wants your devotion. He wants your trust, and he wants your love. As Jesus said in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust. So Jesus is telling us to pray for our enemies and persecutors, and he's doing it so that we will be more like him. You see, God sends the sun and the rain on the unjust and just, and yet he loves us all, every one of us. And he desires with those wide open arms that we all come to him. And so that's point number two is God desires everybody to come to him. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. And so strangely, it's silly season on TV again. I don't know if you've noticed, but Tuesday's election day. And since the first election, presidential election I voted in was Reagan Carter, I know that makes me old, but do you know a crazy thing happened back in those years? The news pundits said this was the most important election of my life. And if it went this way and not that way, or that way and not this way, the world was over. And I want you to know it's not true. What I want you to know is that even though we've been seeing the worst in people, 
whether it's on social media, television, or whatever, it's just the worst of people. And I truly don't care who you vote for. I don't, because after all, God is in control. But I do care that you vote, not because God commands it, because it's a great honor to live in this country, because we have the freedoms to do this. We live in a participatory democracy, which means we have the option to vote. And so if you're inclined to it, take advantage of it. But just know, no matter what happens Wednesday morning, we're going to be just fine because God's still going to be in control. And the most important thing I want you to do, and the reason I brought up politics in the first place, is because the only thing I really care about is that you pray for the people that you voted for, but more importantly, you pray for the people you voted against because they're not our enemy. They're just people who might think differently than us. And we're supposed to love and come together with all of that. So I would implore you to pray for current leaders, not because I'm telling you, but because Scripture does. Pray for past leaders. Pray for future leaders. Pray for all of those people. And when you do it, pray for humility and compassion to have hearts softened for you and for them, and pray for all of them to know the love of Jesus. That's it. And then let's not forget that to do this, to pray for all kings and others in Scripture, it tells us will help us lead peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. Now, Pastor Chris talked about false doctrines a few weeks ago. He mentioned four specifically. And so this isn't if X, then Y. If I do this, then this is going to happen. That's not what Paul's saying here. Because that would be prosperity gospel, and that's false doctrine. God is not our puppet. He's not a genie in the bottle. God is going to do what God is going to do. But he wants us to come to him with his heart. Know what Paul is encouraging people to pray for is because he knows that when we open up our hearts to him and we divulge our darkness, if we have it, our love hopefully is present. And when it does this, it makes us better people. And when we're kinder to our neighbors, when we're not throwing bombs on social media, we typically have a more peaceful lifestyle, especially when compared to those who seem to love the drama and strife. So here's a scriptural example of that from Acts 20. And in that scene, everything seems to be about Ephesus today, but Paul is now saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus. He knows he's going off to be arrested yet again, and he most likely, or he believes he most likely will never see these people again. And so as he's saying goodbye, and it's a tearful goodbye, and he loves this congregation, he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I tell you that this counts for prayer as well. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, I know from a personal example, when Linda and I argue, and sometimes I'm wrong, <clears throat> but I can collect myself for just a moment. And one of the first things I do, one of the first things I should do is I should pray. And I shouldn't pray that she realized how wrong she was. Um, although I've thought that way a few times. But what I should be doing is I should be praying that I can diffuse the situation by putting her needs first. Because after all, in Ephesians 5, there's Ephesians again. That's what I'm called to do. I'm called to put her needs above my own. I'm called to die to myself. And so I pray in that situation that any wrong I've committed be forgiven both by God and by Linda. And when I do it sincerely, 
because I hate to admit it, but there's probably been times when I haven't done it sincerely. But when I do it sincerely, I've noticed that it changes me pretty radically, pretty quickly. And when I'm able to come to Linda with a different attitude, do you know what happens? She often has a different attitude as well. And so somehow that prayer changes the heart of the person we're praying for, sometimes, but it always changes the heart of the prayer. And so don't, I'm not saying if you're in an argument with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or other that you pray, oh, Jesus fix their heart. It's not what I'm saying. You ask Jesus to fix your heart. Let Jesus worry about her heart in that moment. Occasionally, I'll hear somebody say something to the effect of, I don't know what my purpose is. And while I understand the sentiment and have had the same thoughts, it's because in those moments, I'm earthly-minded. And when you pray, prayer makes you heavenly-minded. And the heavenly-minded person knows that, as it says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, we recite catechisms here on a weekly basis because we believe them, one, to be true, and we believe them to be clarifying towards the Word of God and the heart of God. And if we believe that the chief end of man is to glorify Him, well, then it stands to good reason that we should want to please Him. And so let's look at verses 3 and 4. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So this is not saying that everyone will be saved. Because in this same book, in 1 Timothy, in verse 4.1, in verse 5.24, and in verse 6.10, it's clear that Paul is talking about and pointing out people who will not be saved. So you might ask, does this mean that God desires something that he can't fulfill, namely that all be saved? And my response to that would be, whoa, 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 not so quick. Because while God desires all to be saved, he also desires that we give up our own will and trust in him. In Romans, <clears throat> Paul wrote about God. And he wrote, for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God created a world in which both his wrath and his mercy will be displayed. Appropriate wrath, just wrath, wrath, punishment of the guilty is actually a way of showing mercy to those victimized. And so let me give you a real world example in a very tangible way. I'm not sure how many, let me ask, how many people are familiar with the name Rachel Denhollander? Okay. So Rachel Denhollander is somebody who you should look up later. She's somebody whose story we should all know. Rachel is a Christian author. She's a speaker. She's a lawyer. She's a mom and a wife. But she catapulted to fame because she's also a victim. You see, Rachel was an exceptionally talented young girl. 
She was so talented that she made the vaunted and vaulted United States gymnastics team in preparation for the Olympics. And when she was 15 years old, she began to experience back pain, and she went to the team doctor, a man named Larry Nasser. And that doctor repeatedly molested her from that point forward. Rachel eventually filed a complaint with the Michigan State University Police, and an investigation began. And Rachel was the ninth girl that had complained about Larry. She was not the first. In his trial, the doctor was found guilty. And as the police went through their investigation, they identified over 200 girls as victims. And in the courtroom at the victim impact statement, and that's a statement where victims, after the trial's over, the defendants been felt found guilty, the victims then address the court. They typically face the jury, face the judge, and they say, this is how this act has affected my life. So Rachel was the last of 156 speakers giving in a victim impact statement. You can imagine how tragic this was. And Rachel began her statement by asking the court, how much is a little girl worth? And she went on to reference the Bible. And that's because earlier she noticed that Larry Nasser brought a Bible into the courtroom. And so Rachel said, and I'll quote, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love is portrayed of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. And she said, by his grace, I too choose to love this way. And then she pointed to Jesus' biblical words on protecting children, and she warned Nasser. She said, final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. And I pray, she's looking at the doctor, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend to that to you as well. And there, from there, Rachel cited C.S. Lewis, quote, where he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? And Rachel finished her statement with these words. Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was, she stressed. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is, and that's why I pity you. Does that make sense? You see, without goodness, we can't recognize evil. And it's the contrast that allows us to see truly good versus truly evil. And compared to God's perfections, none of us will measure up. God is too good and we are not close. But there's good news. Verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, Christ is the great mediator. And what Paul is doing is he's dispelling the false doctrines of all roads lead to God or everyone's going to go to heaven. And I get it. Those are really nice things to say. They're even nice things to think sometimes. 
but in the proper context, under the, under the microscope of God's truth, they're cruel. Because to say those things is potentially ruinous in an everlasting way. And just as Rachel can recognize evil because she knows what good looks like, we can recognize false doctrine if we know truth. And that brings us to our final point, that truth is Jesus. You see, Paul's pointing out that Jesus, who sat at the right hand of the Father since before time, gave up his throne of comfort, came to earth, walked, felt, and experienced life as a man, just like us. And he did so because he's always willing to do the will of the Father because he loves us. And God loves us so much that he sent his son as an act of substitution for our sins, yours and mine. And he sent Jesus to walk the earth and experience deep pain and deep love. And then at the end of his life, he took all of our sin, every wrong thing you've ever done, he took it onto his perfect body and he allowed himself to be captured and tortured and hanged naked on a cross until his lifeless body was taken down and buried. And then the best part of the story, he was raised from the dead, an act so outrageous, so ridiculous, so unbelievable that the entire Roman government and the entire Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is the Jewish council that did this to him, conspired against him further and continued to make up lies about his missing body. As Kelsey Post ended the scripture reading today, she said, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And I want you to know that after Christ's resurrection, Peter went out as a teacher to the Jews. He went this direction. Paul went out as a teacher of the Gentiles. And while that's important, the main statement though is those last words, faith and truth. And so let me ask you, what does it mean to have faith? It's not belief, because simply to believe in Jesus, that's not special faith. The demons had that faith. Faith can't stand alone. It's got to be combined with somebody. It has a companion, and that companion is loyalty. You see, the Greek word for faith can also be translated as allegiance. And so my question for you is, does Jesus have your allegiance? If you turn to the book of John, chapter 18, verse 38, Jesus is standing next to Pontius Pilate, who's representing the Roman government in this part of our story. And Pontius Pilate, as they stand up on stage, they're facing the crowd, and the crowd is demanding that Pontius Pilate and his Roman government execute Jesus. <clears throat> and Pilate, at one point, turns to Jesus and says, what is truth? Now, there's a couple of different interpretations on what Pilate was asking. But when I read this, I think that it's Pilate mocking the situations he a situation he finds himself and Jesus in. You see, Pilate is not excited to execute Jesus, but he finds himself in this really tough bind. And so rather than doing the right thing, he's going to do the easy thing and sacrifice one man to calm the crowd He's going to subvert truth. And did you notice, if you looked in your Bible real quick, did you notice Jesus' response? He doesn't have one. Because truth needs no response. He's truth. 
You see, up to this point in our story, the Jewish leaders have broken nearly every law designed to protect a defendant from wrongful conviction. Our current laws are based a lot off of these laws. They turned false evidence, they brought forward liars, and eventually even broke another law by forcing Jesus to implicate himself. In front of Pilate, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy, but the Sanhedrin knew that that was not enough to have Jesus executed, so they lied yet again, and they told Pilate that Jesus was challenging Caesar and breaking Roman law by encouraging the crowds not to pay taxes. So Jesus the righteous was being judged by the unrighteous. But we have another quote from Jesus in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, it's interesting to me because Pilate was looking directly in the face of truth, and yet he didn't know it. The origin of truth, Jesus, will never change, can always be relied upon, and it's critical that we know this message. And that's one of the reasons that 1 Timothy is so important for us. You see, that day, Pilate and the angry mob thought they were putting Jesus on trial, but they weren't. It was them who were on trial, and Jesus was the judge. And the sad thing is Pilate evidently never came to truth. Early church historian Eusebius, who's one of the early historians, he tells us later that Pilate committed suicide just a few years later. You see, ignoring truth has consequences. Much like we can't know mercy without understanding wrath, we also can't know lies without first understanding truth. So have faith, have allegiance to Jesus, and know that he is truth, and dig into his word. Amen? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.